Let me pray and then we'll get, get going. Father God, we bow before you again, recognizing your lordship over all and the headship of Jesus Christ over his body, the church. And it's an organic connection that we tend to kind of forget. And I pray that you would reemphasize that for the church in America, maybe even this weekend, God, that we would feel the headship of Christ over the church once again, his spirit um, empowering and leading and moving and informing the church and that we would um, once again feel the power that the church can have in our culture. And we just pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are open this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our last session together, and uh, which I've had a blast being here with you. It's always fun. I get to teach again in the spring when I come to do first year. I get to do one, the little three-hour second year. So that's really fun for me. So until we meet again, yeah, that was pretty, yeah, yay. Anywho, we're going to talk about religious culture and not necessarily just Christian culture, but that's the one that we're most familiar with, obviously, makes the most sense to us. So in your little threesomes, talk about this first question. It kind of goes with the second one. So this is if you're satisfied, how are you satisfied? If you're dissatisfied, how are you dissatisfied? And try to get kind of an equal bit of time on both. So turn and talk to the folks around you. And let's talk about what's satisfying about religion in America and what's dissatisfying about religion in America. Ready, go. I'm not All right, let's see what we've got. Remember, we're talking about just the religious culture in general. 
and I know that a lot of the comments will come out as just you know Christian or Christianity as part of this, but let's just see what, how we're satisfied with religion in America. What's good about it? What is satisfying about it? It is like high good that we have freedom of religion. And in fact, just as we said yesterday, that was one of the huge liberations that the colonists were looking for in coming here was religious freedom and not having a state religion or a state mandated religion. What else is satisfying? Yeah. All kinds of opportunity, yeah, all kinds of resources. That's really true. Coming out of the freedom of religion, there's a, a propagation. I mean, it grows and it thrives and, it, and all kinds of opportunities. What else? Do you feel like religion in America has made society better? How has it made it better? There's something spiritual inside of us, so society's answering that, you know, and, and giving us a, a religious culture. There's an aspect, there's a way that, like in education, we can talk about our brains, and in uh, physical work, we can talk about our bodies, and in a religious atmosphere, we can talk about our souls. <clears throat> but it is also just in, in questioned moral structures. I mean, it's nice to have somebody on the other side <laughs> who's saying, yeah, wait, what about this, and what about that, and, you know, bringing up a different perspective within our culture, which has been part of the responsibility that religion has. Any other satisfactions? How about dissatisfactions? Any neg negatives? Is this okay? I don't want to like freeze you guys out. Yeah. yeah. How many of you have actually experienced that, where you've actually tried to say something? Yeah. Satisfied with the coexist thing. Say that one more time. Coexist. You know those things where they're just like, you know, try to force everything into one religious group. Yeah. Yeah. So the negative side of religious freedom. I mean, we're glad that we're free. It's it's difficult because every religion is free. And there's this like pluralistic idea in our culture that all religions are basically the same. They have the same goal, <clears throat> you know, um, which is just not true. But yeah, that pluralism. Um, it's very nominal. Um, like people think in America, because they believe in God, it means you 
they don't understand that Christians mean that you're a Christ follower. Like, um, they think that if you ask them if you're Christian, they're like, yeah, I believe in God. Like, I had one person be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't know all about the whole Jesus thing. Yeah. So, um, for example, my mom, she's like, I'm not Christian, I'm Baptist. It's a swing and a miss. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it uh, part of it is, and I think in a lot of this, in terms of the Christian Christian part of this religious culture, is we've let stuff happen. The church has. And we, I, I hear people complain about a lot, not that you are, but I mean, I hear people complain about like misidentification and misunderstanding. But it's our responsibility for people to understand. <laughs> so part of it is, I, I feel like, for us, is maybe people don't understand what it means to be Christian because we haven't made it clear. We haven't made a clear understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Even in, in uh, our, my church, there, there is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. I think that a lot of them feel that same way. I go to church. I'm a good person. I give my tithe. I pray. I must be a Christian without knowing specifically what that means. Other dissatisfactions? Yeah. So I also think, like, just it could be any religion, but I think individualism has really impacted religion as well. And that it's like, really, it's like a buffet style. Like, you can pick anything you want. And I think that also our culture is really a lot of apathy towards religion. Yeah, they kind of both go together. I feel like when it becomes so individualized and everybody makes their own, one clear option is apathy. <laughs> You know, it's like another of the options. I can be a fanatical or I can be completely apathetic or someplace in the middle. It's just a continuum of options. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another thing, um, I'm going to go with tattoos for a moment. In the church, sometimes you can tell more what TV show people like by their tattoos than that they're Christian. So, uh, for example, like we have someone in our class who went out and got a Pokemon tattoo and it was large but like what does that say about you in your life? Like when other people see you, what does that state? It shows that you're a Pokemon fan but I'm not saying all of us need to go get like crosses on our body or, <laughs> or things like that but I mean like I mean, really, what are we choosing to show over everything? Like um, I mean and sometimes even with our style or um, like sometimes we have more of this, uh, I want to be like the cool Christian, like I can have my hair however I want, or piercings, or tattoos, and, and that doesn't matter. But I mean, like, how are we appearing to other people? Like, I mean, are we just, like, blending in completely, or are we actually standing apart? I mean, like, so, like, do you go to, do you go to church and look different than everybody at church, which is fine, and then, like, just completely blend in the world with every other way? Or are you still blending in here, but, like, being able to speak out, and then they become adversaries? Yeah, and it's interesting, because you can always tell when somebody who's a church person, like, they're part of religious culture, is trying to fit in and be, like, a hipster outside, because they overdo it. It's just hilarious, you know? Um, I, I went to a... Southwest Portland local pastors get together this lunch thing, and I was by, well, me and Phil Comer 
were like the two oldest people there. And Phil's like 10 years older than me. So he's the one that started Solid Rock, um, the West Side Solid Rock. Anyway, so a bunch of their staff was there and just pastors from all, most of them were quite a bit younger than me, 10 years, 15 years younger than me. And they all had on skinny jeans and some weird like booty thing, boot things, you know? Um, they all had on black shirts that were a little bit too small for them. Does that make sense? Like they were just a little bit too tight. Um, like it would have looked good when they were 18, but now that they're 28, it didn't look quite the same. And they all had like too much stuff in their hair, like, uh, like overtly too much stuff and some weird facial hair of some kind. A lot of them had like a love patch kind of thing, like right here. And I was like, there's actually a pastor's look. Like when I was growing up, it was, you know, a suit and tie and Old Spice. And they all kind of like had the same kind of atmosphere about them. And then there was this awkward in-between thing where pastors started trying to wear jeans, but with sport coats. Um, you know, and then like the untucked thing happened, which I'm a big fan of, obviously. Um, but it's, it's so funny because I'm definitely not hipster. And it's funny to watch. In fact, like the guys my age are like, I think Portland has enough hipster churches. I think we should have church for everybody else too. <laughs> so obviously that's those of us who are over 40 that are saying that. Um, so let's look at this last question. I know this background's a little hard to see. Sorry about that. <clears throat> what three words would describe what you think the church will look like in 50 years or when you're 70 or thereabouts? So what will the church look like in 50 years? Yeah. And probably a middle. Yeah. 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 I think for certain religions, not all religions, certain ones there will be more persecution that's going to be occurring, especially Christianity. Like you see what's happening with all the shootings and stuff, especially like the Roseburg one, which happened a few weeks ago. Like, and I mean, I don't think it's just going to happen with Christianity. I think it could go to Catholicism and which is Christianity. Yeah. Right, a different form of Christianity. And I think like there will be a lot more persecution happening since we're already seeing it now. Yeah, there could be more persecution of the church, uh, less accommodation. We'll just go right down the line. Um, I kind of see it as being, is, am I being refined? No. I should come first. <laughs> just because like, I see the idea, the age of the mega church, but like, the, the large 
larger churches <coughs> dissipating and smaller home churches starting up. It's just in my experience, like I've seen like a lot of smaller churches come up because with a bigger church, you have a lot of people in and out. And um, it's just going to become harder to be a Christian. And it's going to be harder to stand up for what you believe. So I think people are going to start leaving and they won't have the big churches, but I think people are going to start coming with smaller churches. Hmm. Anything you would add? Yeah, I think we went different different directions, what we're going to say. I was going to say my, my, the church would be more purified, I feel like, <coughs> because like they were saying, like everyone's been saying, like there's more persecution, and it's not convenient really to be a Christian or to to be a, a like a Bible-believing, this is what the Word of God says, we're not wavering Christian, you know, not a everything's okay kind of Christian, tolerance Christian. Uh, so I think I think it'll be purified, but I think it's a long road ahead of us. I think the church is going to go through way worse than what we're going through now and that within the next 50 years or so. Anybody else? I'll, I'll get back to you. Another option for being different. Yeah. Um, along with what Jordan was saying, <clears throat> as for like the nominal thing, um, I think with the amount of people who like the push against Christianity, it is causing those who, I mean, because now we're getting less people who don't know what it is being like, yeah, I'm that, because there is so much, I guess, diversity in America for like choice of religion. So it makes those who are, are actually seeking rather than just accepted of just a way of life and, you know, this is what my family does kind of thing. And so I, I think in that way we, we will see a lot more, like, genuine deep faith along with, like, the smaller churches because, like... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I spent three years in the Midwest where Christianity is really a part of culture. I mean, it really is, or churchianity is really a part of culture. And um, it's pretty easy to talk about your faith or to talk about your religious background or those kinds of things in a Midwest, which isn't Bible Belt, but it's above it. So it's like the Bible belly, I guess. Um, but it's got this sense of like, it's okay to talk about it. And it's, you're not persecuted. It's more just denominationalism versus religious and not religious <clears throat> versus being in the Northwest, which is by all accounts, the less, much, much less religious area um, where when people decide they're going to follow Christ, it's a much more serious decision. It's not just an enculturated decision. It's a much more serious commitment, it feels like. That move over here helped me realize that more. Yeah. I think that in time with all of those, like, people having more of their own real faith, there's going to be a lot of churches that are 
Bible or something, and um, stray farther away, I think, from Christ and still look like Christians and everything, but they're going to let, like, maybe firm, like, morals or different things like that slide because they want to be accepted. And I think there's going to be a lot more people like that that are just, like, frustrated gospel types of things. Yeah, I, I, um, let me just say a couple of things about this area of homosexuality because, you know, we, we all have to deal with it. You have to deal with it personally in terms of how you're going to relate to people in your life because the chances are better and better and higher and higher that somebody in your life will come out as being a, a homosexual and you have a personal decision to make how, as to how Christ would have you relate to somebody like that. And, and I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to look at the example of Christ as you process that. But institutionally, which is entirely different, the church also has to make decisions as to how it's going to respond. Um, are we going to become elitist and exclusive and say that there are certain sins, that, and this is totally off topic, so I'm just trying to help fill a gap here. Are we gonna insist that there are certain sins that we just will not associate with? Because we let all the liars in, we let most adulterers in, we let all gluttons in, because we kind of like gluttons. They're fun and jolly. Um, we have come to the place. I mean, in my lifetime, when I was growing up, the sin that everybody was talking about was rock music. Everybody was talking about it. And I grew up down in Southern California, where a guy named Bill Gothard had this thing called basic youth conflicts. Um, the only other person that's old enough to know is nodding. And it shaped evangelicalism in the 50s. I mean, it radically shaped West Coast evangelicalism and the West Coast church. And it was super legalistic and super moralistic. And, and Bill Gothard like declared things right and wrong, good and evil, bad and good. I mean, he had like this, this amazing following of people who just wanted some clarity. And he, among other people, took on rock and roll and it became a huge thing. I mean, it was, that was the sin du jour. I mean, it really was. And then as I got a little bit older and the church moved on, and I'm talking about now in the last, you know, this is 50 years, like we're talking about what it will look like in 50 years. This is in one sense, the church in the last 50 years. After that, it was divorce. And that was the big scandal. That was the sin that everybody talked about. And could elders be elders if they were divorced? Could a pastor be a pastor? If a pastor married somebody who had been divorced, is he an adulterer? I mean, it was like this huge question that came up and really became divisive. And there were churches who allowed divorced people in churches who didn't allow divorced people. And I, I know it still happens. <laughs> there are still conversations about rock music, so whatever. Um, and then after that, when I was a young pastor, it was the era of uh, anti-abortion. And that was the sin that everybody talked about. And that was the topic that everybody, and it became militaristic and it became um, hate-filled. And there was this huge sense that you know, the church is going to eliminate abortion from society, and now it's homosexuality. And it's been very, very interesting to watch these conversations ensue over the last 50 years. So our church had to deal with it. Our church had to say, you know, in terms of, and, you know, which is weird because I thought as an upper middle class, suburban, we're like a 43-year-old church. I mean, like the age of our church, not the mean age. The mean age of my church is like 60. But the... Uh, the uh, age of our church is like 40, it's been around for about 43 years. <clears throat> and I just thought we'll probably never have to talk about it. I'm, I, I feel like, I mean, I, it'd be good for us to talk about it, 
but pragmatically, we probably will never have to talk about it. And then all of a sudden we had to talk about it for several different very personal reasons for people in the congregation. And there had to be some point of clarity. So I had to pull some elders together and make a statement that's not on our website. We're, we don't want it to be the identifier for us any more than any other sin. Like we don't have a statement about rock music. We don't have a statement about <clears throat> nuclear war. We don't have a statement. There are a lot of things I can have a statement about. And <clears throat> somebody asked in a, in a membership class one time, what is your official position on homosexuality? I said, we don't have one, and I hope we never do. I hope we never have an official statement against any one particular sin. Because Jesus made one statement about sin. You're forgiven because I died to forgive you. <laughs> I mean, that's the statement Jesus made about sin. So I don't feel like we have to make a particular statement about it. And I hope we don't. That being said, <laughs> there still has to be some kind of, of um, movement within religious circles about how we're going to act and how we're going to respond. You each individually have to determine that, and the church corporately has to determine that. Are we literally going to, because of a chosen lifestyle, which is as a lifestyle not addressed in scripture, Culture has made homosexuality a lifestyle. Scripture does not. Scripture still regards homosexuality as an act. It takes like 10 minutes, and it's an act. Just like adultery, which probably takes eight minutes, <laughs> and it's still an act. So when we make homosexuality a lifestyle or regard it that way, we're actually moving outside of the bounds of Scripture. So if you're going to judge somebody's lifestyle based on what the Bible says, you're, you're on slippery ground. And it's not our choice. I mean, we didn't declare the lifestyle. Society did. So we have to deal with that. But if you pound your Bible and say God's against your lifestyle, <clears throat> you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a really hard time. It's the act of homosexual sex that is a sin. Now, I'm not justifying anything. I'm just saying be very, very careful what you thump your Bible and say. Because the Bible doesn't regard it as a lifestyle. So when you start thinking about how you personally are going to deal with people, is there one group of people that you're just going to hold at arm's length and say, God loves everybody except you. And I believe that part of it for us in church, and I'll finish with this, is we choose sins by their icky factor. If a sin's not particularly icky, we're much more tolerant of it. But there's something really icky for a lot of us, like viscerally like Ugh, about homosexuality. That is, is part of our reaction. That you don't feel that way about theft. There's not something inside of you that gets a little like stomach turned when you think of theft. But it's just as much a sin as a lying or murder, adultery any of those sins. So I just invite you to keep thinking about it very, very carefully. It's not what this class is about. I don't want to talk about that much more. But it keeps coming up with us. And I think it's interesting that as we're identifying and talking about our culture and church and culture and religion and culture, that this is a, something that comes up with us, which it ought to. I mean, we should deal with it. We should think about it. But we should think about it and see people the way Jesus Christ sees people as much as we can. Because there was no group of people that Jesus just held at arm's length. There was no ick factor for Jesus. 
And I'm really glad, amen? I mean, I'm really glad Jesus doesn't hold all sinners at arm's length because of their sin. He doesn't do that. So let's move back into the notes, unless somebody just is aching to say something. Let me just say, if that sounds like a liberal move to you, that might not be bad for you. If that sounds less fundamentalistic or less legalistic to you, that might be something you should pray about and think about. If what I just said sounds liberal to you, you might want to think about that and what that means. All right, so the pseudo-gods, um, which we have a couple here to talk about. And well, again, we're talking about religious culture and what religious culture means. Well, in America, our religious culture is a Christian religion culture. Other religions exist, but the vast majority of people who are religious in America are some brand of Christianity. So when I say the church, I mean the church, capital C, the church meaning the Christian church, okay? Institutionalism is the understanding of the church as just another structure uh, within our society, like the government or education or um, any, any other institution. Um, and that we hold it in the same degree. So like business principles apply to church, management principles apply to church, um, financial principles apply to church, um, societal norms belong, you know, fit church and church has to give in to those. That's what I mean by institutionalism. The belief that church actually exists in a place like between nine and noon, like you go to church, um, that's an institutional mindset. There's a place you go that you call church. There's a building you go to, you call it the church. Um, and we're all susceptible to this. I mean, this is something that everybody in this room has to kind of stop and think about now and then and think when I going to church, I'm going to the people of God gathered together in a spot as opposed to this institution. And as you rise in, in ministry and come to places of leadership, this is one of the constant rubs. Like in a church like mine where our elders, our lay leaders are predominantly white collared, um, fairly well educated, and some of them very, very successful in business. And they're the ones with whom I make the decisions about our church. Their whole background is business. I had an elder tell me last year, I know, Greg, you don't want to talk about business in, in our church, but everything in life is about business. Well, for him, it is. That's been his whole life, you know? And so when he thinks he has just this one paradigm, this one structure by which he lives his life, he probably manages his house like a business and his business like a business and his kids like a business. And so he wants his church to run like a business. But not every business principle works in church. That's an institutional mindset. So the church is just like any other institution. The church is constituted legally, socially, geographically. And it is. It's just more than that, okay? Like we have letters of incorporation for our church. There's ways that we have to act to maintain our tax-exempt 501c3 nonprofit status. There are rules that we have to follow. Uh, I have to write contracts for jobs. By the way, we're looking for a part-time, a half-time youth pastor right now. If you know anybody who's interested in a really great group of kids at a really fun church, it's only 20 hours a week, pays 24,000 a year. So if you know anybody who's interested, let me know. Um, that was a pitch, that was an advertisement. This section paid for by Mountain Park Church. Um, but we have to mind our P's and Q's because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want what 
the spiritual things in our church to not be able to happen because I've misstepped in the institutional side of my church. So there is an institutional reality to my church. I mean, I have a building, we have a business manager, we have nine acres that we have to take care of. I can't just say, oh, it's all spiritual, the grass will mow itself. It will not. We've tried that. It didn't work. So, so any comments about this? I, mean, I, I don't want to overdo it, but it's one of the problems is people get stuck with maintaining church as an institution and stop seeing it as the real body of Christ. Okay? Is that clear? You're all very quiet. Now, I think I shut you down with my comments about homosexuality. I closed him off. He's dead to me. Um, second pseudo-god is imperialism. And I don't mean imperial like um, the margarine. Uh, imperial in the sense of empire um, that there was historically a Constantinian vision. And I know that you've heard about this, but let me just kind of say it for our, our context here. That the church was under persecution from the time Christ left, the church was established through the succeeding emperors, predominantly Domitian and Nero, the church went under very, very direct persecution to the point that it was deadly to say you follow Christ. It was dangerous to be a Christian. Though Christianity was spreading by the time Constantine became the emperor of Rome, who was a military leader, most Roman emperors were, most Caesars came to their post out of military exploits and achievements, and so did Constantine. Constantine, as a soldier, as a general, had a vision that God was going to lead his army as long as he honored God first. So he put a big cross on all of his shields and banners, and that was the presence of God going with them. And he was an overwhelming conqueror and assumed that it was God giving him great success. So once he became emperor, he declared Christianity as the, the, the faith of the Roman Empire. And immediately Christianity changed. Now, you guys all know this, right? Not if you've heard this or okay. So immediately Christianity changed. Immediately it was no longer a suffering, subverted, marginalized, um, spirit-empowered movement. It was a state-sanctioned reality. All of a sudden, being a professional Christian was an option. Um, and the, all over the Roman Empire, um, the Constantinian vision of a Christian world took over. And that's very positive in the sense that it allowed Christianity to spread. It's very negative in that when you spread Christianity mixed with a, society, with a culture, with an empire, Christianity is going to get watered down. And some people are calling America very Constantinian in this sense, that we were established as a place of religious freedom and as a place that was going to be a Christian nation. And throughout the history of the United States, there has been this understanding that we are somehow the new Israel, somehow we are a Christian nation like no other nation, that that's why God has given us such great success. Um, I just read a book a couple years ago called uh, The Book That Made Your World, and it's written by an Indian, Eastern Indian educator uh, who is looking at America and making this presumption that because America has lost its way from understanding scriptural truth, we're going to lose our way as a society because we've forgotten that it's the Bible that made us who we are, which is very, very interesting. Um, his name is Mangualdi, if you want to read the book. I'm pretty sure that's his name. So what we saw in the Constantinian vision was a blending of church and culture. 
and the trust in the sociopolitical devices for the kingdom advancement, that we can legislate our Christianity, that we can put politicians in place that will protect our Christianity, that we can, through the empire, maintain our Christian presence. And again, some of you might feel like, why is that a pseudo-God? That's a really good thing. The main point in this is that when you mix Christianity with any culture, Christianity gets watered down. It's not the same Christianity. And I think, just as a side note, if Paul walked into any of our churches, like on a Sunday morning, he'd be like, what are you guys doing? And we'd say, oh, church. And he'd say, no, this isn't church. I don't know what this is, but this is not what I started. This is not what I had in mind when I started churches. And I'd say, no, these are elders. Why are they sitting in a circle in a room with the doors closed? That's not what elders do. Oh, no, we take care of the business of our church. Business? Why does your church have business? I just think Paul would be remarkably surprised if he came to any of our churches and he'd say, I don't understand how you make the decisions you make, why you make the decisions you make. I don't understand what you need this big building for. This looks very, I think Paul would say, this looks very Jewish to me. I think that's what Paul would say. So any comments about this? He's so quiet. So the theological pitfalls. First are legalism. And that is creating a structure or a methodology of salvation through works. Legalism is not just being black and white. Legalism is not just having some rules in your life that help you move forward. It's not like having a rule makes you a legalist. Legalism is believing that you can save yourself through keeping rules, that there's a legal structure to your salvation as opposed to through faith in Christ. And the church in the U.S. has been very, very susceptible to this, partly because of not moving far enough away from the Roman Catholic Church in the Reformation. Some of the movements didn't get far enough away from the Roman Church in their Reformation before they turned mainline uh, and became like liberal congregations. Um, so that's the first theolo theological pitfall. The other one is kind of on the other side, and that's relativism, adopting the values and standards of the culture to define your life in Christ. And um, you know, so you can see these are opposite ends of the spectrum. On one side you have legalism, there's black and white rules, and on this side over here you have this sense of everything's kind of relative, situational, circumstantial. I just have to make up the best choice I can in the circumstances I have. I don't have any moral absolutes or moral guidelines. And probably where we need to live our lives is somewhere in between those two places where we make sense to the culture around us, but we have a moral structure, we have moral absolutes, we have firm footing um, on which to stand. Any questions about those comments? She's speaking in tongues. Another theological pitfall is enculturation. When the culture and church mix, church loses. And there is a, a real strong sense that we have, that we have to be culturally relevant. We need to be in the world, but somehow we're not supposed to be of the world. So there's this balance that we have to find, this balance that we have to live, where we actually live not as just like freaks in the world that people don't even want to be close to, but we live as truly Christ-reconciled humans in the world who are light in a dark place, who are salt in a tasteless world. I mean, we're supposed to have an effect in the world. The difficulty is crossing the line too far 
and letting culture so define who we are that we just look like all the rest of the world. And it's interesting to me because, you know, George Barna and the George Barna group have done massive, constant, I mean, the whole time I've been in ministry, I think George Barna must be like 800 years old because the whole time I've been in ministry, he's been doing these massive um, social studies where he's looking at the nature of, of the, the world, the nature of the church. And uh, one of the things that he's found out is over time is that the church really doesn't have that different a lifestyle. People in church who go to church, call themselves born again, have the same rate of sin in their life, the same rate of success in their life, the same rate of, of um, parental success and parental failure in their life. It's all very, very similar. So it's interesting how enculturated we are. So one solution was the liberal solution, and that's just to just be like the rest of culture to just give over and to agree with the values and standards that the culture gives us. The other side is conservatism. Don't give up, don't give over, conserve what you have. Um, never change, hold on as much as you can to the things of the past, um, no matter what they are. And those get defined very personally. I remember when I first came to Mountain Park Church, I came as the Minister of Worship Arts and um, they wanted to change their worship because they had like a choir and a pipe organ and a piano and sang three hymns and usually stanzas one, two, and four, you know, how we all used to do. Um, and they wanted to change it and make it more relevant. And so that's part of why they hired me. And part of what I had to do is get a drummer who didn't mind bringing his drums every Sunday because the church didn't own drums and he would bring them for rehearsal Thursday night, pack them back up, take them home, bring them Sunday morning, set it all up, take it all down. Any drummers in here? I mean, that is a ton of work. And finally, he was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. My drums are getting beat up. I'm getting beat up. This is horrible. And so I got people to help him, but then his drums got more beat up, you know. So finally, I just went to the elders, and I said, we need to buy our, our own drums. The church needs to have drums. And one guy, wonderful guy, he's with the Lord now, but just recently. Um, and he raised his hands, and he said, not his hands, but his hand. And he said, if we, have, if we buy drums, they'll be here all the time. And I was like, yep. That's exactly right. And in his mind, that was a liberal move because it was just like the culture. And people would write on their notes, this is like 20 years ago, people would write on their communication cards, their little, their little comment cards now, you know. Um, There's no difference between this morning's worship and being at the bar. And I always wanted to be like, what bar do you go to? Oh, I don't, don't want to hang out there, you know. Um, and how would you know? So, and then obviously the extreme of this is fundamentalism, and that's the reduction of the body of faith to the basic components as defined by a particular tradition. So there's all kinds of fundamentalism, and we know this because we've heard about Islamic fundamentalism, and there's this disregard for fundamentalistic thinking throughout our, our culture. You can be a, sci a scientific fundamentalist. It just means you go down, you, you reduce things down to their basic fundamentals, and you will not compromise on those fundamentals. The difficulty is, who gets to determine what those are? So a fundamentalist in a Christian circle is more than a conservative. And people call themselves, so I'm a conservative fundamentalist. When you say fundamentalist, you don't have to say conservative. <laughs> and the difficulty is not being a fundamentalist. I am fundamentally a fundamentalist. <laughs> it's what you determine are the fundamentals. Like is not dancing a fundamental. Is, 
is, um, I don't know what else to bring up, drinking a glass of wine, something against your fundamentals. And that's the difficulty, is who gets to determine what the fundamentals are and who's, who's going to live with them. So you have a whole variety of fundamentalists who are all in different traditions and different backgrounds, different historical lineages, who have their fundamentals that they think are most important. Yeah? I was just going to ask, sort of like the term fundamentalism, generally when people use it, that's what it would be towards? I don't, I don't know if that's what people mean. That's what the term means. Yes. In, yes. But have people taken and put their own slant on it? This kind of thing. Is that what fundamentalism, when people generally refer to it, would it be like a, a term that people would use for very extremely conservative or you know extremists on that side? Is it, does it generally not take on the form of in a healthy form? It's it's not healthy, and and I probably the the word that you use that helps best is extremist, um, because they decide what the fund, fundamentals are by their tradition. And they'll back them up in the Bible, but they'll, they'll decide what their fundamentals are. And if you get to a fundamentalist church like in the South, it'll be completely different than a fundamentalist church up in the East Coast. Because society and who's been there and what the traditions are, like fundamentalist churches in the South are very um, mysterious and uh, they're very, very rigid, but that's also where you find like snake handlers and, yeah, and they, they regard those as fundamentals. So it's just, it's, it's hard. It's a, it's a category of, of acting as opposed to a group of thought, of beliefs. That's why I'm saying, per, I'm a fundamentalist, but not in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, um, and, and I'll just say that I think the things that I would, the hills I would die on now in my life are way fewer and way more important than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Well, 40 years ago, I was only 14, so I probably didn't have many hills I would die on, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, I, it really comes down, like if you look at our church doctrinal statement, it's very sparse. It's very sparse, and, and that's what I would call essential. And we have to have essentials. They have to be biblically derived and they're probably, I mean, it'd be silly for me to say that our essentials are not in line with some tradition. We are. Every group is. There's no group that's not in line with some tradition. That's just not possible. I know groups that think they are. Calvary Chapel's like, oh, we're not traditionalists. Well, now Calvary Chapel's been around for 25 years. It's its own tradition, you know. So I don't know if I answered your question or if I just made it worse, but. So fundamentalism, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's bad when it gets militant and extremist and when it's just guarding your group's fundamentals against that group's fundamentals. So, and I gave you um, some examples of that. Creedalism, like Orthodox or Roman fundamentals or propositionalism, which is evangelical fundamentalism, is propositionalism. not um, like in a, kind of like their doctrinal statement that 
they might be required to um, perform like gay weddings and things like that. Yeah. Let me just give you, you the like word it in such quick a way. background on that. The people who are saying that are, and I'm not, <laughs> I don't want this to sound like I'm, I'm complaining, but the people who are saying that are fundamentalists. The people who are saying that the church has to take a stand here, like draw your line in the sand here, and they're, they're using scare tactics. I've read all this stuff, and they're trying to use scare tactics to make churches stand on this issue together. Um, first of all, has anybody here actually read the law the way it was handed down by the Supreme Court? Anybody here actually read it? So I find very, very few people who have read it, <laughs> and even not just in church, but just anywhere, people who've read it, they've taken the media interpretation of it. But the law doesn't say that homosexuality is now you have to perform marriages in every state. The federal government did not decide that for every state. What the, what the judiciary decided was, even if you don't have gay marriage on your constitution as a state, if a gay couple married in this state that has it legal, moves to your state, you have to recognize the marriage. That's the law. So it didn't require every state to just fall to the Supreme Court judicial system and have to not have to make their own state choice as to whether they're going to do, perform, and sanction gay marriage. But that's not, what we, that's not what's talked about. That's not what's said. I read the whole bill, and the whole, that's, that's what the bill says. Exactly. They can be on your medical. Yes. So the state that you move into, though they might not have state-sanctioned state homosexual marriage, they have to recognize the legalities of a marriage in a different place where it is legal. So I, as a, as a church, I don't want to raise a flag. I don't want to make this a, a watershed area for me. I think there are much, much more serious sins that a church like ours has to deal with. That if I was going to make a statement about sin, which I'm probably not going to, um, I would probably have to pick something that's much more relative to my congregation, relevant to my congregation. Yeah. See, the problem for me is pastors who haven't read it, who take militant stances and write stuff and put it on their websites and preach sermons who haven't even read the bill. To me, that is completely irresponsible to me. So another, it's very pious of me to say that, now that we're going to talk about pietism. Another theological pitfall is um, the rejection of all cultural aspects, being completely irrelevant from the church, not being in the world, not being of the world, not having anything to do with the world. And this is American Christianity in its roots is pietistic. In its roots, when the pilgrims came here, they came as separatists. And they were trying to get as separate from the Anglican church as possible. What does the word Puritan mean? What does it stand for? They're the pure ones, right? So they're the, Purita the pure ones, the Puritans who are trying to remove themselves from what is clearly, by their opinion, impure. And they're going to bring pure religion here. Well, pure religion in America and its roots is pietism. And there's nothing wrong with being pious or pietistic. There, there's nothing wrong with that. 
unless it circumscribes your whole religious experience. I mean, if this is how you define your religious experience, it's very internal, it's very self-centered, it's very personal, and it's not organic and collective, you know? So it's just your personal experience. The spirit in me, God in me, which is the way a lot of us would define our Christianity. The reason we would define it that way is because that's our roots. Are you clear? Okay. So this is a part of the problem, and this is rampant. I mean, we, at the beginning of our, our conversation, somebody said something about how great it is that we have Christian schools and we have, you know, Christian everything. I mean, like, like there's a Christian phone book in Portland, like of Christian yellow pages. So if you only want to hire Christians, you can use the Christian yellow pages. And I've always felt like we've kind of tried to create instead of a, a culture that runs alongside God's created fallen order in a redemptive way. We like tried to build as many barriers and walls as we could between our society, our culture, Christian culture, and the rest of culture in this pietistic, separatistic manner. Um, I, for one, um, and this is not a political statement, it's not a bit, I'm just saying, we raised our kids in public schools on purpose because we wanted to be involved with the public and in our schools. And I, we worked in classrooms, we knew all the teachers, we were part of um, the decisions that were made. And it brought up a lot of questions. I mean, from the first time my kids rode the bus to school with fifth graders after the movie, you know, the here's how your body works movie. Um, I had all kinds of explaining to do um, with my first grade son because he was surrounded by fifth grade boys who were still like, having seen the movie, you know, they're just like shell-shocked. Um, so yeah, you have to do a lot of talking, but that's, that's the world my kids actually live in. That's the world they're actually gonna grow up in and the people they're gonna work with. And I can't keep them separate from life forever. I can't guarantee them a Christian school at the Christian college and a Christian job where they never, ever, ever have to interact with the rest of the world. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm supposed to. Okay, that's the separatism. Okay, all right, in the last one minute, let's talk about a couple of important concepts. And the second one we've kind of talked about, so I'm not too worried about this one, but this one's really, really important for us. And that is to understand um, that you are part of a story. In your Christian life, you are part of a story that began with creation and a fall. It's gonna end with a new heaven and a new earth and Jesus Christ reigning on earth physically. You're part of an ongoing story, and it's called narrative. Story is narrative. And our theology has ceased to be a narrative theology. It has become a propositional, principled, systematic, methodological, um, kind of stale and sterile theology. So it's become very easy for us to sequester ourselves often to write little principles and little rules and little things that make us different, as opposed to understanding that this is a whole creation-wide story that's bigger than Israel, it's bigger than the church, that um, the story of the Bible is a story literally that is for everybody. Let me just shock you. Jesus Christ did not die to make Christians. That was not his plan. Paul calls him the second Adam. Jesus came, died, and rose again, and lived his life to remake humanity the way God intended it in the first place. Does that make sense to you? Let me keep talking then. So what God created in the garden with Adam and Eve, they weren't Christians either. You know that, right? 
They were just perfect human beings, sinless. They were exactly what God wanted. He created what he wanted. When they chose rebellion from God, they introduced sin into the world, and it was no longer what God wanted. So what God has been doing since that time is trying to recreate humanity. First, he tried some individuals. He tried Noah. He tried um, Moses, or Abraham. Then it got to Moses, and he decided he was going to make a people. And these people were going to be his people, his choice possession. And they would show the rest of the world what it means to be human and live in a right relationship with their creator. And that didn't work. So Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, Paul's words, the second Adam, to start over again like he did with an ark, like he did with Israel, to start over again with humanity and remake humanity. It was never Jesus' intention to create another a religious option in the world. So this story is big, and it's for everybody. This story is people-centric with the theme of redeemed relationship. The narrative, the point of the story, our hero Jesus came, again, Paul's word, to reconcile all things back to himself. All things. And what reconcile means, you take two things that are separated but are meant to be together, and you put them together again. When I first started banking, you had to reconcile your books, and that's where you would take your records and the bank records, and you would, they're usually very different, and you had to reconcile your books back to, our church has to reconcile our books on a monthly basis. It means we run a total of, of cash and of expenditures, and we compare that to the bank, and hopefully they say the same thing. That is called a reconciliation. That's what Paul said, you are enemies of God in your hearts because of your evil, and Jesus Christ came to reconcile you back to God. So that is the point. That is the story. That's the gospel. That's what we should be saying to people. That's what we should be communicating. Not a Roman road. We should be telling them in the truest sense. 